Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is still Nate Arnold, and uh, I'm glad to be here this morning with you to uh, break God's bread, His Word. And uh, I'll connect a little bit to last week as we get started, but today um, we're, we're currently in a mini-series about how and in what manner we study the Bible. And last week we learned uh, that the primary way that we approach the Bible is to get to know Christ. And we said uh, there were three things involved there. We said that we study the Bible to get to know Christ as a person because it takes a person to connect to a person. Uh, We said that we study Scripture to get to know Christ as Lord and Savior uh, so that we turn to Him in obedience and for rescue and from our sin. And number three, we said we study Scripture to know Christ as God so that we can trust Him, that He can follow through with His Word and carry out uh, what He says He'll do. And from that study, we understand that our salvation is based in a person and that particularly faith in the work of that person, we get to know Him by knowing more about Him through the study of the Scripture. And He is the good news. We've sung about it. We've, we've talked about it already this morning. And all Bible study must be looked at through the lens of Christ and through the lens of the Gospel. So that was last week. This week's ter- uh, uh, title is The Bible is Not a Magic Book. The Bible is Not a Magic Book. And in today's sermon, we're just going to look at two things. I left your bulletin blank because the outline actually has five sections in it, and the outline itself would take up more space than, than you had to take notes. So pick what's good for you, take notes on that, and, and, and work it out. And if you need to talk to me afterward, I'll make myself available if you have questions. But today's sermon, the Bible's not a magic book, and we'll see that Bible study requires, number one, A personal commitment to Christ, a personal commitment to His gospel, and sometimes hard work in Bible study to determine the truth of God's Word. Number two, it requires a proper methodology, a proper methodology or series of tests that help us get to the intended meaning. Now, our text today, we've already, already read, but let's go over it again. We'll throw it up on the screen there, I believe. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, and we'll unpack this slightly. We're not going to geek in the Greek, but we will unpack it slightly as, as we go forward so you can get the meaning of what it means to have our own, or what the Bible says about us having a personal commitment to the truth and a personal commitment to the study of God's Word. So, 1 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The first part of that is do your best. Do your best. What does do your best? Your parents have told you this all your life. Do your best. What does do your... God's telling you that too. Uh, Do your best. What does that mean? That means to be diligent, to do your best, to actually put some effort into the study of the word. And do your best to present yourself to God. So you're not presenting yourself to me when you study the Scripture. You're not presenting yourself to anyone else really in this congregation when we study Scripture. We're presenting ourselves to God, and God knows whether we're really working hard to understand the meaning or whether we're slacking. Uh, We all slack. Put your hand up. If you slack every once in a while. We all do. 
it's true, but do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. And this means tried and true. And the Greek word under there really is talking about silver money. It means the money is pure. It means it was, it was good, good currency. Do your best to present yourself as one approved. A worker. Most people think Bible study requires superior craftsmen. But that's not the Greek word here either. The Greek word here is just a regular run-of-the-mill day worker. Matter of fact, just a fruit picker or a grape picker. That would, that's, that's what Paul says here. That's the word here. So don't have to be a master craftsman to get to the truth of God's word. Just putting some effort in. A regular worker here. Who has no need to be ashamed? Why would a, a, a regular worker have no need to be ashamed? Because they put in a good day's work. Not killing yourself, not overdoing it, but putting in a good day's work. You can go home. Uh, as I'm retired Navy, so we say go home, hit the rack, and, and go to sleep. And, and that's what it says. That's what the, but the next part is kind of a, he has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling. And for the Greek scholars in the room, this is what's called a hapax legomenon. Everybody got that? You'll be tested later. Hapax legomenon. All it means is it's a one-off. This is the only appearance of this word in the New Testament. And it's kind of hard to interpret when you don't have anything else to compare it to. But there is two appearances of it in the Septuagint, and it always appears with cutting a path. And the word means to cut it straight. So when you cut a path, you want to cut it straight. You don't want to wander all through the woods. You want to get from point A to point B. And that's, that's what the Greek word underlying there means rightly handling, cutting it straight. And Paul tells us what we're rightly handling. It's the word of truth. And then our second text, we'll unpack that a little also. This kind of setting the stage for our personal commitment to the truth and how we study. Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourself as what? Okay. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may what? You may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And in the first verse, we get the exact same idea that we already saw in 2 Timothy of presenting ourselves as one approved. He says, do your best there. You want to be holy and acceptable. And then Paul talks about our bodies as a living sacrifice, our spiritual worship. In other words, just like a sacrifice, sole purpose in life was meant to lay on the altar and give glory to God, that's what our bodies are meant to do. It's meant to be on the altar and give glory to God in that sense. It's our spiritual worship to use our bodies that way. And in the second verse there, Paul tells us to be a nonconformist, a nonconformist to worldly ways of thinking, a nonconformist to worldly ways. He says we're to be transformed through the renewal of thought, the way we think changes. And we're to test or critically evaluate ideas in order to determine if they align with the will of God. We're to test them. To test them. Now, in almost all cases of establishing and understanding truth, we tend to utilize some sort of test, don't we? 
in all cases. And I would bet uh, everybody in here uses tests all the time. We continually use tests. If you're a gardener, you use a litmus or a pH test. You want to know if your soil is alkaline because if you're going to grow the ghost pepper, you're going to want some acidic soil. It's got to be rocking, right? If you want a good tomato, it's got to be perfectly balanced. And if you want good cabbage and collards, you've got to lean on the alkaline side. We do those tests so we can have good products, so we can have the truth come out on the other end of the test. Mathematical tests. I know there's engineers in the room. I come from an engineering background. We do, a matter of fact, right before uh, the sermon started today, I came up and did a static load test on this. <laughs> I put my Bible in because I didn't want it doing this the whole sermon. Okay, so we did a static load test so I, I could operate here. But engineers do that. We do dynamic, static, static load models, things like that. Computer programmers. We test our logic. We write our code in blocks, and then we start running tests on it. We want to make sure the logic works. We want to make sure the loops and the branches all work. We don't want to get stuck in a do loop. And then, last of all, we check our algorithms and make sure they give us the right answers when we run the code. And if it doesn't work, we sell it to Microsoft. So that's kind of the way we do it. Uh, police officers. Everybody's familiar with police officers' tests, right? They have this little gun called radar gun. They test us, test our speed, and unfortunately some people get their blood alcohol content tested also. And the parents, a lot of parents in the room, we have this little test for the heating up of the milk, right? We put the milk right there, we do that, a little test. Also with diapers, we have a thing called the sniff test, right? And so that's when dad gives the baby to mom. And mom goes, ew, can't you check it out? But anyway, we use these tests all the time. And when it comes to establishing and understanding the truth of the Bible, we also use tests. That's what the scripture calls us to do, is, is, is test these things. So we have to have a framework that helps us to arrive at the truth of what's being said in scripture. There has to be some systematic approach or test. So I'd like to take a minute and cover what I call the magic book technique. The magic book technique. You guys ready? Just wait for you. All right. The magic book technique. There was a man, and he had a great decision to make, and he got before God, and he says, Lord, show me what, what the answer to this decision is. Tell me which way to go. And he pops open his Bible, and some of you may have heard this before, puts his finger down, and he looks down, and he sees Matthew 27 where it's talking about Judas, and it says, and he went out and hanged himself. Oh, that can't be the answer, Lord. <laughs> so he closes his Bible back up, and, and he prays again. He just, you know, really, Lord, I really need an answer to this. And, you know, he opens his Bible back up, and, and he puts his finger down again. And, and this time he hits Luke 10.37, and Christ says, you go and do likewise. Dude, can't hang, you know. So he closes up his Bible again, and he prays, and he prays, and, you know, he just spends some time there with the Lord, and he opens up his Bible again, and it lands on John thirteen twenty-seven, and it says, what you're going to do, do quickly. That's using the Bible as a magic book. Come. And this is a funny story, but it makes some very good points. And I want you to see that the man was sincere. 
He was sincere. He was looking for an answer. He was sincere. And I also want you to see that he prayed. Did he not? He prayed. He sought the face of the Lord. He prayed. And he even used the book. He even used the Bible in his approach. But because he had a wrong methodology, he wound up getting the wrong answer from the Scripture because he used it like a magic book. Well, you say, Nate, I never do that. I'm glad. (laughs) I never do that. But we see in here the magic book technique used all the time. And those of us who uh, minister uh, in counseling form, my wife is a biblical counselor, works with the Low Country Biblical Counseling System, or center, I mean, and uh, pastors counsel all the time, elders counsel all the time. There's, there's people in your church who are constantly counseling. And people who counsel hear what I'm about to tell you all the time. We hear people begin sentences like this. I have peace about it. We'll, we'll finish these in a minute. Or God showed me. God showed me. The Spirit impressed me. God showed me in a dream. God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. God wouldn't want me to suffer. God wouldn't want me to be poor. And then one just happened to my wife this week. She actually got added in here. One of her counselees says, the Lord's just not speaking to me. And then after you hear these sentence stems from the person, what follows that is something like, I have peace about it. I think it's okay for me to, as a follower of Christ, to marry a pagan. Okay? Or I think it's okay for me to do this or that. And whatever follows the rest of that sentence is absolutely the antithesis or the opposite of what Scripture teaches. And that's called using the Bible as, as a magic book. Well, how does this happen? The people who wind up in these errors are sincere folks, right? They are. They really are. You know, you can't look down on them, be mean to them or anything like that. You have to deal with them in their sincerity in that, in that sense. But some people just are following a false gospel. Some people just are following a false gospel. The world tells us we wind up in situations where we put culture over Christ or my cravings over Christ, and we wind up in a false gospel using the Bible this way. Some people have just been taught incorrectly. There are people, I grew up in denominations that were uh, in the prosperity gospel, and the people under that ministry were just taught incorrectly. Um, And then some people, sad to say, uh, I was one of them early on, were just lazy. When the pastor preached something, we want you to check me out. That's why you, you have a copy of the book or, or it on electronic. I think it's funny, you know, because we have copies of the book now, and we used to scroll. We used to use scrolls. Then we had the book for a while, and now we've gone back to scrolling, right? That's, that's, I always, always enjoy that. But, uh, but some people are lazy and unwilling to seek the truth. So that's how people wind up in, in these areas. Uh, and, and our reasons and methodologies for studying the Scriptures are extremely important. They help us help to provide us with the correct answer. Because I could be lying. 
Hopefully not, but <laughs> I could be. I could be wrong. I could be mistaken. And, and it's, it's your job also to check me on this. So I'm going to give you three points about biblical interpretation. There's going to be three, point, three tools for your box. This is not all the tools in hermeneutics and biblical interpretation at all. There's tons of them, but I'm going to give you three, and I think they're three good starters and they'll help you out as you approach various doctrines and approach your study of Scripture in how you study Scripture. The first one has a fancy name. It's called the analogy of faith. Analogy of faith. And what that means is, we say it simplistically, but I'll have to break it out a little bit for you. Scripture interprets Scripture. Now, not all Scriptures can you find another interpretation for for it in the scripture. For example, <clears throat> if you were looking at the, where, where Paul talks about being baptized for the dead, there's no other scripture that sheds any light <clears throat> on what he was talking about. He was talking to an audience that knew what he was talking about, and we don't have any, any uh, information on it. So not every scripture will have an exact answer in scripture. That's not what this is saying. But the analogy of faith says, or it's better stated as, there's an agreement among this book there is an agreement within Scripture so that it never contradicts itself. Ever, ever, ever. The analogy of faith says this is God's Word and God never contradicts Himself. So, if we come up with a great new doctrine, and we're Americans, we love great flashy new things. It's the way we work. It's the way we're wired. We come up with a new doctrine, but the rest of Scripture says, yeah, that's probably not true. We've probably come up with a wrong interpretation, right? Because the Scripture doesn't contradict itself. That's the analogy of faith. The literal reading, number two, literal reading. The Scripture is to be read the way the author intended. Literal reading. Read the way the author intended for it to be read. R.C. Sproul has a great book out. Uh, I would recommend it to you. Uh, the name of the book is Knowing Scripture. It's a small book. It's easily read. Great information in there. And uh, I, I highly recommend it to you. There's another one by D.A. Carson. I would recommend you read after R.C. Sproul's book. It's called Exegetical Fallacies. Great, great information there. But R.C. says about literal reading, uh, he says not every text in the Scriptures is, a, is given a woodenly literal interpretation, but rather that we must interpret the Bible in the sense in which it is written. Parables are interpreted as parables. Symbols as symbols. Poetry as poetry. Didactic, which means teaching. Didactic literature is didactic literature. Historical narrative is historical narrative. Occasional letters as occasional letters. The principle of literal interpretation is the same principle we use to interpret any written source responsibly. It's how we interpret the Constitution. It's how we interpret any, any book like that. So the Bible's to be read like any other book. No secret sauce. The Bible is interpreted using, using the ordinary rules of human language, writing, and understanding. Number three, tool in your toolbox. Grammatical, historical method. Scary sounding, right? Well, what we do here is we closely examine the original grammar. We closely examine the historical context. 
and that helps us to determine what the Scripture means. So let me kind of put it straightforward to you. In other words, we're seeking the original author's intent and his intended meaning to the original audience in the original historical context, and then we're seeking to get principles there. They drove donkeys. I drove an, I drive an F-150. little difference, okay? But we're seeking to get uh, the, his, the principles there, and we're seeking to lift them out and apply them back into modern times. And that's all the historical grammatical method means. And this often entails some hard work, I've got to say, if you're going to do this right. But I need to say to everybody in the room, this is not just for pastors and teachers and elders. And uh, There's plenty of helps out there. There's plenty of good commentaries, plenty of computer tools, plenty of things like that that are available to help you do this. But we still need specialists, I would say, in, in this area. And that's, that's our professors in seminary. That's our uh, properly trained pastors. Because 1 Timothy 5.17 tells us, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. It's because people who labor in preaching and teaching use this method and dig in so hard. Now, this part's free. I won't charge you for this. And I really hadn't really intended to say this, but it takes about 14 to 20 hours of a man's time to prepare a message. So that's what the pastor's doing. I'll pick on Phil. I haven't asked him about this. Sorry, Phil. But, uh, and that's what it takes to prepare a message. And that's the kind of time that the exegetical method, uh, that the historical grammatical method takes in, in exegeting, exegeting a, a passage. So pastors have to spend a lot of time in that. People who use this method have to. And if you're going to use the method, you have to do the work also. It's, it's not an easy easy method. Okay? Well, why is this important? Who cares? What's so critical about proper interpretation? The number one thing that a proper interpretation of Scripture does, the number one thing, is to help maintain the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because there are other so-called gospels. We'll throw four of them up on the screen here for you. But there are some other so-called gospels. I've already alluded to one. There's a prosperity gospel where we give to get. We're able to, uh, we're taught, we're able to pull certain levers in Scripture and we get God to give us things because we do things or because we have so much faith or because we pray a certain way. The prosperity gospel. There's the self-improvement gospel. The gospel that says, I'm able to change myself. Now, I'm not talking about change my actions. We can certainly do that and even change the way I think about something, we can do that. But I'm talking about changing at a fundamental level, changing our hearts and so that we're good in God's eyes. And we'll cover this in a second. Social gospel, where we do good works to make God happy with us. Kind of like good karma, right? Comes back around to us and yoo-hoo! You know, I'm expecting my dollar's worth there. Legal gospel. I keep God's commands to become righteous in His sight. There's, there's others, but we just don't have time to, to get into that. But just like the man in our beginning example, people who hold to these other Gospels pray. Don't be fooled. They pray. They do. They're earnest. They use Scripture. They are sincere. They seem to be spiritual. But they have a bad methodology 
for understanding the meaning of the text. And we'll talk about these very quickly. Not much time to go into it. Prosperity gospel. It inverts. We talked last week about if Jesus is your Savior, then He is your Lord. If He's not your Lord, then He's not your Savior. And we showed, showed you that. Well, prosperity gospel tends to invert that. It violates the analogy of, of faith also. It, it, takes, it wrenches Scriptures out of context and without taking into account the rest of the Scripture and what it says about that particular subject. Well, one favorite I have listed there for you, and you can study it, study it later, but it's Matthew 10.30. And, you know, they say, hey, Matthew 10.30 is a great investment. You invest $10, you get 1000 back because that's where Christ says you get a hundredfold for everything you do, right? And that's what the prosperity gospel teaches. I grew up in it. Uh, but, um, and, but they don't take into account where Jesus says, hey, you're supposed to give in Luke without expecting a single thing in return. So they violate the analogy of Scripture. Sorry, this thing is... Pulling around my shoulder there. Social gospel, or self-improvement gospel. It just has a flawed understanding of Scripture. It's basically culture over Christ. It's popular with the culture. If you walk in any bookstore, what's the biggest section? The self-improvement section. Okay. You can go there and, and, and see that. Uh, but it violates, or it just completely, it's a flawed understanding of Scripture. Romans 3.10 tells us what? As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. On and on and on and on. There's no way for us to become righteous in the eyes of God by anything we do, by how much we improve. That's completely opposite of what Scripture tells. And by using these methods, you can quickly ascertain that. Social gospel. My good works outweigh my bad. Let's just play with this one. I'll I'll take a few minutes. I hope I don't go over because of it. But I'll take a minute. Turn to uh, Revelation chapter 20. Uh, verses 11, we'll go all the way through 15. He says, Then I saw a great white throne. And I've had people tell me this, God will weigh my good against my bad when I get to heaven. And I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Stop there. See, Nate? I'll be judged according my good to my bad. Is that what the Scripture says? Well, what about Isaiah 64, 6, where it says all our righteous deeds are as a polluted garment. It's all filthiness. So everything we thought was in our good pile is actually in our bad pile. Right? But let's keep reading the text. Let's stay with the text. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Last verse answers the whole question. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, it didn't matter what he did, good or bad, right? It mattered that their name was written in the book of life. Okay? And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Social gospel, my good deeds outweigh my bad. Legal gospel, I can keep God's commands. Galatians 3.10 says you can't. It says for all who rely on works of the law are under a... Starts with a C, rhymes with curse. Okay? <laughs> you can't do it. 
And James tells us that if you break one of the laws, it's a package deal. Matter of fact, it's the exact same as salvation. Salvation is a package deal too. But if you break the law, it's a package deal. You got the whole book flies against you. You just don't get held accountable for the one who broke the whole law. It's, it's a package deal. So the legal gospel doesn't fly in light of interpreting the Scripture properly either. You can't do it. You can't arrive at that conclusion by using the Bible as a magic book. Now, I would say, I'm not up here to beat you or anything like that, but I would say that if you've been thinking in one of these four ways, maybe, uh, and, and that disturbs you, uh, I would be happy to talk to you about anything. And I promise you, I will not belittle you or not run you down, and I'll make myself available if you want to talk privately about these things. But it's very important that we come to a good understanding of how to properly interpret the Scripture. And if you're disturbed by this, the Holy Spirit just might be going, hey, uh, you need to get a better understanding about Christ. Maybe you're bothered or convicted by anything that you've heard today. Maybe some of the Scriptures bothered you or convicted you. And you want to talk about that. I'm sure the elders, I'm sure Phil and everyone will make themselves available to you. All right, we've got to land the airplane. Why, 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 why? And we already said, the gospel is of the first importance. If we don't get that right, it doesn't matter what else you believe about the book. It, it doesn't. I don't, I, I don't know any other way to put that. I'm, it, it doesn't matter. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 4 tells us, for I delivered to you as of first importance, first importance, the primary thing that I delivered to you, Paul says, the number one thing that I want you guys to get, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The biblical gospel is this, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth and lived a sinless life in perfect obedience to God, and He offered Himself as a perfect sacrifice for the sin of His people to reconcile us to God. And as a sacrifice, He was killed on a cross. He was buried. God placed His seal of approval on Christ's sacrifice by His rising from the dead. And He, Christ, ascended to the right hand and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and He's going to come bodily He's going to return bodily and He's going to judge all who have lived and all, all who will live. So if you, when, when we change our mind about this, when we move from other ways of thinking, when we move from other Gospels, when we move from a worldly way of thinking and, and about Christ and we completely trust Christ in His work and we cease to try to please or appease God through our own efforts, which is what these other ways do, we're granted forgiveness and righteousness. Remember the package deal? On Christ's work alone. And we live our lives to please Him from a heart filled with gratitude. And I would say to you in the room this morning, I, I don't know all of you, but if you have not trusted Christ this way, if you've not trusted Him this way, I urge you to come to Christ today. I urge you to talk about this, to seriously consider what I'm telling you, to seriously Take the tools that we've talked about and look earnestly at the book and find out if I'm lying. Check me out. 
Our last scripture I'll leave you with. Christ says in Matthew 11.28, He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, I pray for this congregation and the setting that you've placed them in and here in North Charleston. And Lord, I pray that they would become people who are people of the book, people who are diligent about studying and diligent about applying and diligent about seeking the truth. Lord, as you call us to. Lord, and that we would evaluate the thoughts of the world. Our culture just pushes all kinds of things onto us. And that we would begin to evaluate every thought. As Paul says in another place, taking every thought captive. And Lord, we would look at it and, and see if it's the gospel, if it's the truth. And we would filter our Bible reading through the gospel. And Lord, that you would just multiply this group of people's minds and their spirit and strengthen them so that they can share the gospel that they know the gospel, that they understand their scripture, that they're strong people in the scripture, and that they share the gospel in this community of faith and show Christ in their lives by a good understanding of the scripture. And we ask this all for the glory of Christ. Amen.